Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So, today we're back in John Murray's book. As those of you who are here in prayer meeting know, um, we're back in Principles of Conduct, where we've been discussing different aspects of biblical ethics to guide us in our own thinking as we're living in this world where we're placed today. Um, today, I'm going to begin teaching from chapter 4, which is on the ordinance of labor. And uh, you may remember that before the break for the holidays, Pastor Jim was teaching some lessons tangentially arising from chapter 3 on the marriage ordinance and procreation, which followed the four lessons that I taught from that chapter on the sexual ethic for the ordinance itself. Because these things are so prevalent in our culture today and they're so pressing on us, we aren't finished with those topics. But we felt that we could get started in chapter 4 and potentially finish it before Pastor Jim returns and he takes up some more of, his, of the topics that are related to those things in chapter 3. So I hope that helps you to understand kind of where we are going over the next month to six weeks, and we'll plan it as we go. <clears throat> Remember that we are covering these topics, seeking to teach every one of us how to think about these things, not what to think about these things. So if you're looking for a list of rules to follow to make sure that within the Christian ethic, you're not going to get it here. What we're trying to teach you is how to think through these things, these kinds of things, using them as examples to show us how to go to the scriptures and apply the principles we find in the scriptures to the things we face today and the things which we will likely face tomorrow that we can't predict right now. So with that, let's begin our studies on the ordinance of labor. As with marriage and procreation, we'll see that the ethic around labor is timeless, though the subjects of application will be constantly changing. So first, as is my bent, we're going to start by defining what we mean by labor. So I'm just going to ask all of you, how would you define this ordinance of labor that we're going to study this morning? How would you define it? It's not, it's not readily apparent to put in a single phrase, I don't think, but could be. Go ahead, Brian. I would, uh, all the endeavors and responsibilities we have to provide for you. Certainly, yes. All endeavors and responsibility you have to provide for you and your family, yes. Okay, good. Positive tasks. Yes, Derek? Uh, just the parallel language of doing your work. It's your work you've been given to do, and you're doing it. So, right. Doing your work. The work you've been given to do. Right. Yep. I get scientific. Yeah. It's transforming energy from one state to another state. You and I think a lot alike, Daryl. <laughs> Go ahead, Jim. Side of the concentration camp to the 
<laughs> That's labor. Okay, good. That's certainly part of it, and we're going to get to that. Yes, Will. Uh, it seems to me that it would be connected with uh, service. Service, good, good. These are all valid elements that you guys have brought up. And, and for our purposes, I'm going to suggest something. And I told Daryl that I think a lot like him, and you'll, you'll see what I mean. Labor... I'm going to propose, this is not the exclusive definition, but I've used it to shape my own thinking. Labor is any activity aimed at reducing disorder in the world around us. This definition can fit manual labor, like construction work, as well as intellectual work, like counseling or inventing or designing something. It also fits what I'll call unpaid labor, Things like home maintenance, or care for children, or cleaning the house, or doing yard work. It's all labor, and it's all reducing disorder in the world around us. Now, naturally, I think, I think about this um, when I thought about it. I thought about the second law of thermodynamics. You guys all know what that is? Okay, one person knows. I bet a couple of people know where it is. Right. In simple terms, simple terms, I'm not going to get into a technical definition here. This law states that the disorder of the universe naturally increases. That's the second law of thermodynamics. And I, I want to illustrate it. If I could have brought it up here, I would have. But imagine I had a big glass jar and it was full of M&Ms. Now I've got your attention. And the different colors were separated into different layers in this jar. Now further imagine that I took that jar and just, just shook it while I was talking to you. I'm just shaking the jar of M&Ms. I'm not doing anything special. I'm not working on it. I'm just shaking it. What happens after just a couple of minutes? The M&Ms have all mixed together Jim? Well, I was just going to add after you were done with your demonstration that you, you haven't defined your terms yet and how we understand disorder and, and, and uh, order. Keep, keep that in mind as we go because that's not a single def that's not a single statement in my notes. But that's a good point. Okay. So that illustration of shaking a jar of ordered M&Ms demonstrates the second law of thermodynamics, which is that unless you apply what I'm going to call, and I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not seeking to have a science class here, but I am, I am saying if I don't apply intelligent energy or, well, I'll just leave it at that, to this jar, it's going to stay mixed. In fact, it's just going to get more mixed. If you could put a, you can put a number on it and measure it, but we're not going to talk about that. Okay. I think that this definition, the use of intelligent energy to reduce disorder, in other words, to bring the, the world around us into a more ordered state, is what I'm calling labor. Now, we could, we could try to define what order is specifically, and I might say it's something more in line with, again, this is very broad, but 
with God's will for our universe. But then I'd have to reduce that down to things that you could understand. I'm not going to do that. I think that this definition fits the Bible's ordinance of labor that we would need to expend to till the ground, thus reducing the disorder of the ground. Because what, what grows on the ground? A piece of beautifully tilled earth, fertile ground. I don't do anything to it. What grows there? Weeds. Everyone yells weeds. After the fall, that's true. We're going to talk about that just a touch. I believe that this definition fits with the proliferation of activities that we have today that came from that original example of tilling the ground. Things like designing and constructing things, education and training of children, washing clothes or dishes, mowing the lawn, etc. All these activities leave the world behind us more ordered than it was. And I think that that is a working definition, not a technical definition, of labor. So for our purposes, anything we exert energy to accomplish that leaves the world behind us more ordered or with the potential for more order can be classified as labor for our purposes. I want to make this definition as broad as possible because it is broad. Now I want to show or talk about that man was created to work, to labor. That's what we're created to do. Genesis 2.15 shows the original institution of this ordinance. Genesis 2.15 reads, this is before the fall. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. Here we see that man was not created on earth simply to sit in leisure and eat and sleep. That's not what we were, we were created to do. He was created to, quote unquote, tend and keep the garden in which God placed him. What did this labor look like relative to the labor we know today? Because we only know post-fall labor. And that's where my definition has come from, is post-fall labor. Do you know that the second law of thermodynamics, I don't think it applies before the fall or after we get to heaven. There is no tendency to disorder in those sinless states. So how did it feel to, how did it look, how did it feel to, to labor in this world without the disorder introduced by thorns and thistles <laughs> complicating our task. Does anyone know how that looked? No, but I can imagine. Yeah, <laughs> I can kind of imagine, but I, try, I tried to think about it so I could define it. Well, that's true. I think there's truth in that. But what is the purpose of it? It's not to reduce disorder. The, increase beauty. Uh, increase beauty. That's getting, that's getting, that's good. That, that's getting close to what I thought. I, th I thought that labor in the pre-fall world and in heaven will bring increased glory and honor to God. 
That's what it will do. To tend and keep the garden, it, ex it does exactly, but we have to fight thorns and thistles. There's a Six Sigma guy talking. <laughs> Every activity pre-fall is value add. That's beautiful. It all tends to bring more glory to God. It enhances what he has given us. There is nothing degrading that. We aren't going to talk any more about pre-fall labor because it doesn't exist for us until we get to heaven. So before or shortly after creation, we don't know exactly the time period, man sinned and fell, and God pronounced a curse on, man's, on the, the doing of man's labor in Genesis 3, 17 to 19. It reads, then to Adam he said, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. One thing I want us all to recognize, this curse is not a curse on labor. It does not make labor not a gift to us from God. It's a curse. The curse really is the difficulty and frustration in the labor to which we are called. In fact, I could say again, I'm not going to hearken back to this again, but it was at this moment that the second law of thermodynamics became valid when disorder was introduced into the world. Sin is disorder. So post-fall, leaving the world behind us more ordered always requires us to work at it. And very often the work is accompanied by a degree of difficulty or random waywardness. Just ask anybody working at any kind of construction, I chose road construction because rain and sunlight and all kinds of, of natural occurrences affect the efficacy of road construction. Or ask someone keeping up with a toddler if disorder doesn't naturally increase. Because it does. In fact, I might even say, not just a toddler. And I won't go any further than that. <laughs> The Bible gives a multitude of examples of this, right? Genesis 4.2 certainly indicates that Cain and Abel were both engaged in labor as we've defined it, right? Cain in tilling the ground, Abel in keeping flocks. Both of them were seeking to reduce disorder. We know from Genesis 6.22 that Noah labored to build the ark for 100 years. And from Genesis 9.20, that he also, after the flood, tilled the ground, planting a vineyard. He was laboring. Throughout the Bible, we see clear evidence that man is, was created to labor, whether it is in Israel conquering and settling the promised land, 
or in Solomon building the temple, or in Paul's work as a tent maker. Now, I just want us to look for a minute at the fourth commandment. And I'm going to stress, we're going to look at it in Exodus 20, the fourth commandment, verses 8 through 11. But we're really only going to consider verse 9. This is very important. This was... This was highlighted to me. I knew it, but it was highlighted to me by reading through this chapter in the book. Because Exodus 20, verse 9, is nestled into the fourth commandment, and it's not irrelevant. Exodus 20, verse 9 reads, Six days you shall labor and do all your work. That's part of the command. It's an expectation. We should expect that. We should expect to be working six days a week to honor God. It's more than just a preamble to the Sabbath commandment. God commanded or commanded all men to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy in verse 8. Then in verse 9, he says, six days you shall labor and do all your work. That's part. And in verses 10, 11, he describes what obedience looks like to the Sabbath or rest commandment in more detail. He starts with an acknowledgement that this activity, labor, would consume the primary part of our time, six days, the primary part of our time and energy, thus define the beauty and graciousness of the Sabbath rest. By contrast, you're going to be laboring, and you're going, to, you're, going to, you're going to have one day in every seven to rest from that labor and simply to focus on worshiping me. It's so gracious. It's so merciful. But think of both sides of it. Six days, we're going to be laboring, he tells us. In simple terms, and don't, don't crucify me for making it too simple, because I know very well my weaknesses in oversimplifying. But in simple terms, this command is saying that man was created for just two purposes. Work and worship. Work and worship. Labor and worship. Now, we have to understand, I'm going to make a couple of caveats here, we, we do understand in making this statement that since we are finite creatures, we are finite post-fall creatures, we must rest in order to work and to worship. And that rest, or maybe a better word would be refreshment, or maybe even a better word than that would be recreation, that recreation is understood to be good and necessary. So don't go away and say, Charlie said, we just work and worship, and that's it. It's not true. We are, we are, in our state, designed to need sleep and to need recreation, refreshment, in order that we might work. So this recreation is good. It's not a product of the fall, but it's a product of our humanity. So we can well imagine Adam and Eve pre-fall refreshing themselves, resting, recreating in the garden 
Just as we all know the benefits of diverting our minds and our bodies to recreational pursuits in order to enable us to labor more diligently and effectively. There's a purpose for our recreation. It isn't the recreation itself. It's to enable us to labor more effectively. But get back to Murray here. Murray said something shocking in this part of the chapter. He said in discussing this text, Exodus 20, verse 9, that, expo that he says that, that it exposes, quote, the complications and hypocrisies often associated with the demand for a five-day week. Whoa. We're down to demanding a four-day week now. I've heard a lot of that. Fridays are supposed to be the first day of the weekend, not the last day of the work week. That gave me pause. I don't know if it gave many of you pause or not, but it gave me pause. I think what he's really laying his finger on is the motivation for this five-day week, for pursuit of this five-day week, as exposing the complications and hypocrisies. It's the motivation for it that exposes our, our, our hypocrisies. Yes? Right, yeah. And that's, where, that's where Murray's coming from. He, he is old enough, Murray is old enough to remember this and to say, I remember six-day work week. Why are we at a five-day work week now? And we're just a generation later saying, no, we're, at a, we're going for a four-day work week, folks. So is the time we're trying to get back from work, is it that we're trying to escape our perceived bondage to labor, the God-ordained gift of labor, are we looking for more time for amusement and entertainment, being free from these bonds as we have defined it? Or is it making this pursuit of a five-day, a shorter work week, five days, four days, whatever it is, is it for making time for our outside labors, in other words, for our other labors, things we do that, that still bring order to the world around us, but for which we don't make any or we make insufficient actual income to support ourselves? Are we trying to free ourselves to do a wider variety of labor, or are we trying to, to free ourselves to not have to do labor? That, that's what I'm saying. I think it's the motivation that drives the complications and hypocrisies that Murray's referring to. A five-day work week is not inherently evil, but if it's motivated by a desire to escape labor, it is. We're trying to escape a gift that God has given us. I would assert this motivation makes all the difference. I'd also assert that we were all, every single one of us, were created to work. And it is not a bondage to work. There's a sense in which we are all always working at something. Whether it's worship, recreation, 
ordering our world, in other words, uh, working, or disordering it, either actively through what I've called destructive entertainments, things that bring disorder, or passively through laziness, not doing anything. When we're not doing anything, we're working at something. We're working at allowing disorder to increase. That's not good, but it's, it's the, what we're doing. Really, it comes down to the, this actively or passively disordering the world around us comes down to labeling our activity, our recreational activity, as either self-focused or service-focused, other-focused. And if our activity is self-focused, it's destructive. If it's other-focused, it can be productive. It's either not, the, 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 the valid ends we're going to talk about right now. So I think I'm just going to not say any more at the moment, but I'm going to talk about everything we do needs to tend toward valid ends, not invalid ends. And selfish motivation is my shortcut way of saying invalid ends. I know we could come up with a, an example that fits, that is selfish, but it's good. I'm sure we could, but to me, that's the exception that proves the rule. If you think of it as whether you're serving yourself or serving someone else, I think you'll be on safe ground. So labor or work is a fruit of salvation. That's the next assertion I want to make. It's a fruit. It's a benefit. It's a gift of salvation. We are, we're given the gift of laboring. We as creatures created in God's image are created with an inborn drive to labor in some way or another. I'm going to say right now that we are not going to get through this in two lessons. It's going to be three. Now I'm going to continue. So 2 Thessalonians 3, 10, 11. They settle the case, in my opinion. We don't have to look at another scripture. We will, but we don't have to. Let's read 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 and 11. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all but our busybodies. Okay, so in my definition, they are working at being busybodies. But I want you to see the logic here. In verse 11, Paul states that some are walking disorderly. In other words, contrary to God's will, God's law. And then he goes on to say what walking disorderly or not according to the Lord's will looks like. And he says it explicitly, it looks like not working at all, not laboring. He also goes on to name the corresponding misuse of that time and energy, that the time and energy that could be used in laboring, but the Thessalonians are using it not to labor. What are they doing instead? 
They're being busybodies. That's his label for it. They're not doing anything to provide for their needs. They're depending on others to provide for their needs. Remember that I said all of us are always working at something. Here, Paul is corroborating that belief in saying that when the Thessalonians were not working, they were becoming busybodies. They were working at that. That's where they were devoting their time and energy. It's destructive. That's a selfish use of their time and energy. They were working at spreading disorder in the form of gossip and purposeless activity. But let's look quickly at 1 Timothy 5.8 as well. Because one, certainly one valid use of labor, one fruit of our labor is to support ourselves so that we don't depend on others to support us when we can support ourselves. But 1 Timothy 5.8 looks at it slightly differently. It reads, but if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So here Paul is basically stating that we deny the faith, that is, we act in practice like we are not redeemed if we don't provide for our own. So if we don't provide for those that depend on us, our children, our wives, in the case of husbands, That might be material provision as discussed here directly by Paul. But it could also quite easily be broadened to include the provision of care and daily maintenance of our children or family members incapable of providing for themselves. That's what we labor for. We labor to support ourselves. We labor to support those that can't support themselves and depend on us. That's why we labor, those two purposes. If we are not laboring or doing the, what I'm labeling as, the labor of recreating, of refreshing ourselves to be able to labor for the purpose of supporting ourselves or supporting those who depend on us, we should question the purpose of what we're doing. So if our work or labor is a fruit of being saved by the Lord, something our Lord gifts to us as his children, and he does, how ought we to think about it and to do it? We're going to cover those two things. I doubt we'll get through them both, but we'll try. So how ought we to think about it? This is a question that virtually all of us have had to, have had to grapple with, probably more than once for many of us who are a little bit older. And the question is, what should I do when I grow up? What should I do when I reach this next milestone in my life, whatever that milestone is? In my case, retirement was a significant milestone where I had to ask this question again. What am I going to do with myself? Answering that for ourselves requires discernment. And I'm, I'm saying discernment is synthesizing the principles presented to us in God's word together with our understanding of the way God has gifted us into an answer that is specific for us. What kinds of principles are we talking about? 
Now, I can't turn this class into how to discern from God's word what this answer is for each one of us individually. It's just not going to work out. If you think I'm behind now, you should try it. We should try doing that. But for the sake of illustration, I want you to consider two principles. First, 1 Thessalonians 4, 10 through 12. This, I don't know, yeah. Paul writes, but we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. Increase in what? Well, what he said in verse 9, love for each other. Increase in your love for one another more and more. You already do this really well, but you, I want you to do it even more and more. And how do you express that? Verse 11, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we have commanded you that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. In other words, you may be a good witness and you may support yourself. So apparently Paul felt it necessary and right to exhort the brethren in Thessalonica to seek to be content, to live quietly and work with their own hands so that they would be a good witness for Christ and not lack anything. This was their way of loving one another more and more. Have you ever considered that? We love one another by not burdening them with support for us. That's a form of loving our brother. That's what, that's what Paul is writing the Thessalonians about, among other things. A lot could be said here, but I'll just say that it leaves us this principle leaves us with a lot of latitude for choosing how we work, how we labor to support ourselves and those who depend on us. We need to examine how God has gifted us and to seek to use those gifts to serve him and his people. Labor is to serve. Labor is to be in keeping with our gifts that God has given us, and they're all unique for each one of us. That will most often be in quote-unquote quiet work. That's what Paul is saying in 1 Thessalonians. That is, work that is not naturally out front for all to see and admire or even to know the details of what we do day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, decade by decade. That's how long our work goes on. And connected with that, so, so the first principle is to seek to labor at, at what God has gifted you to do. That requires a measure of self-assessment, and it requires a measure of initiative, to get up and use the training God's given you. Not the training, the giftedness God's given you, to seek training to refine the gift that God has given you. Second principle is in John 21, 21 and 22. This is Peter and John, or Peter and Jesus really talking about John, <laughs> walking on the beach before Jesus ascended. It says, Peter... Seeing him, that is John, 
said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. He doesn't say follow John. He doesn't say do what John does. He doesn't say you'll get what John gets. He says, what is that to you? You follow me. Show your love for your fellow man by seeking to live the life God has given you, doing the work that he has gifted you to do. And the work he's gifted you to do is not the same as the work he's gifted me to do. But we all fit together, don't we? God has arranged us exactly as he intends. And here's the principle. <laughs> Don't compare your gift with someone else's, but rejoice to follow your Lord in using it as he has seen fit. Use your gift to its fullest, ex fullest extent to serve in the kingdom of God. And rejoice in that. And don't allow your joy to be poisoned by looking to the right or to the left and saying, oh, I wish I had that guy's gift. Or, man, I'd like to be doing that. Or I wish more people would notice what I do. Paul said quiet work. That applies to the vast majority of cases. I worked for the same company for 32 years and no project I did or led others to do as a chemical engineer will have any direct eternal significance in and of itself. They're just projects. And they're on stuff that's going to break down and burn in the end. Today, I've been retired from that company for more than seven years. And the work God has gifted me to do in this season of my, of my life may well have direct eternal significance. I, I don't know, but there is a chance. Does that mean that the bulk of my strength, the flower of my youth, was wasted, and only now I'm walking in the Lord's will? No. Daryl says no. That's good. Some of, some of the people said no. What do you say, Brian? I'm saying no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Not all of us, but most of us, right? Many of those 32 years, I sat week by week under the ministry of men gifted to feed me the word of God. While well, I went off and played with tinker toys with the bulk of my time, the rest of my time. I mean, I, just, I was just rearranging tinker toys. Sorry, Daryl, it's true. It's a Am I to conclude that their work was first class, these men who fed me the word of God, and that my work is second or lower class? Because it's not, it's not as important. I don't think so. God, what's that? You're reading my notes. That's right. God gifted me for my labor to help support those men in their labor. That's the kingdom of God working as a machine is supposed to work, different parts doing the, the function they're supposed to do. God gifted my labor to me to teach me important lessons and to gain me perspective. In other words, to sanctify me. He sanctified me through the work I did each day, 
and the fact that I did that work for 32 years in a row. We're going to stop after this point. God gifted me my labor to teach my sons now and others, sorry, to teach my son and now others that there are no second-class jobs in the kingdom of God. They're all, they're all the same class. They're just different functions. What's that? One body. That's right, one body. It all comes down to obeying God and going at it with all your might. Day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. Ecclesiastes 12:13, the close of the book. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. Hear what Solomon is saying in this book. After I chased everything in this created world around looking for satisfaction, the Lord brought me to understand what my life is really about. Living to fear God and obeying him in what he commands me to do. Not what he commands someone else to do, what he commands me to do. That's what my life is all about. That's how we answer the question what do I do when I grow up? We think about these principles and others, and we apply them in a way that allows us to discern the way the Lord wants us to fit in the body. We're not going to go to the second point I want to make here, which is how do we work? We'll, st we'll start off with that next time. So let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to you that you have given us this gift of labor and that you do allow us to participate in bringing you glory moment by moment, day by day. Father, we pray that you would help each one of us to properly view our labor from your perspective more and more and that we would not, as it were, look to the right or to the left and wish for something that you haven't given us, but rather we would be content with and rejoice in these gifts that you have given to us to allow us to labor in your kingdom and to bring you glory. Father, we pray these things, asking for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.